0: in the night, but joy comes in the morning. To put it more concretely, in the Gospel of John, that the Son of God, the creator, the, the creator of the world, the author of life, that He hung on a tree and died would be a tragedy. Reason for only sorrow, if not for the resurrection. What is an occasion for sorrow becomes the Christian source of joy and a paradigm for the Christian life. It's because... The Son of Life was slain that we, the sons of death, can live. The same event that brought sorrow brings joy on the other side of resurrection and revelation. Suffering proceeds, it's transformed into joy. I want to give us three reasons from the text this morning that we can experience joy even as we suffer. Three reasons we can experience joy even as we suffer. First, our suffering is temporary. And transformed, our suffering is temporary and transformed. Second, our supplications are heard and answered. And then, thirdly, our success over the world is guaranteed. Okay, our suffering—it's temporary. It's transformed. Our supplications—that is, our prayers—are heard by God and they're answered. And our success in and over the world is guaranteed. Three reasons that Christians can rejoice even as we suffer. First, we can have joy in the midst of our suffering because it's temporary and transformed. Again, more specifically, because Jesus rose again. As we'll see, our suffering is transformed. And because he will come back, it will cease. It is temporary. We start in verses 16 through 20, where there is a lot of confusion about this little while phrase. I won't read it again. A little while you won't see me, in a little while you will see me. It's repeated four times. One commentator writes, after four verses of these twin sentences, we are no closer to knowing what Jesus means than we were at the first verse. The disciples are thinking, wait, you're going somewhere? And you're coming back? Now the easiest explanation is that Jesus is saying, in a little while... In less than 24 hours, they won't see him because he's going to die. His body's going in the grave. And then in a little while, three days later, they will see him because his body will rise. Perhaps what's most stunning about the text, though, is that the disciples, despite 16 chapters of Jesus' teaching, still do not get it. Wait, you're going somewhere? This serves to illustrate... Uh, the spiritual blindness that we were born into that we've seen throughout the gospel of John. They yet to fully understand. Jesus' clearest hour revelation hasn't come yet. That's not until the cross. We see that John 12, verses 23 and 24. The disciples, in fact, John tells us, don't understand much of what's going on about the kingdom until after Jesus was glorified. That's John 12:16. In fact, Jesus has already told the disciples that they can't bear much until the spirit of truth comes on them and guides them into that truth. That's John 16, 13. But notice how Jesus is bearing with them in their slowness to understand. Brothers and sisters, be comforted with how patient of a teacher God is with his people. Think back on your Christian life at some of the long and painful lessons that God has taught you. Despite... Warning from his word and his people, you still did this or you didn't do that. Despite sermon after sermon, quiet time after quiet time, you were slow to believe and obey. Imagine if God gave up on you after he told you something once. No, our God instructs us. He waits for us. He prods us. He convicts us. He teaches us some more. He's patient with us. He doesn't give up on us. Brothers and sisters, we should aim to be the same way as we disciple one another, as we teach our children. Jesus knows he can't explain much more than he already has at this point. His concern here is their perseverance in a moment where it will look like there's no point in going on. He wants them to believe even as things look bleak. His goal is to ground them in truth that can guide them, even... As their feelings betray them. This is, in fact, a good reminder for us that our feelings are not typically good measures or indicators of reality. They might tell us some of what's going on inside of us, but they don't often lay over and explain the external very well. God and his care toward us. People and their love for us. They don't explain it events very well. The disciples are about to wrongly interpret what's going to happen. Jesus explains, truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn. This is an explanation of how they're going to respond to the first, you will not see me. You will weep and you will mourn. The cross at first for the disciples brings nothing but sorrow and suffering because it looks like they lost it looks like their king was overthrown like their prophet was silenced like their priest was slaughtered the cross at first brings nothing but tears because they're not interpreting it in light of the first 16 chapters of the gospel of john they're interpreting it in light of what the world thinks has happened verse 20 you will weep and mourn but the world will rejoice before the resurrection, the disciples in the world, they have the same read on the cross. The world thinks it's won. The disciples think they have lost. We weep. The world rejoices. It's one thing to lose a game. It's another thing for the winner to taunt you. I see this a lot with my children. <laughs> Insult to injury, as they say. Well, the world, the entire system of people and sin under the sway and rule of Satan laughed for three days as the followers of Jesus wept because they thought they had won and the disciples thought they had lost. C.S. Lewis vividly captures this in the chapter 14 of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's titled The Triumph of the Witch. You likely know this story. A little boy named... Edmund is guilty of betrayal, which gave the white witch the right to kill him. She had been reigning over Narnia for a season. Unbeknownst to his followers, Aslan, the great lion, the long-awaited king, the one who was on the move to overthrow her wicked rule, he gives himself up to save the boy. He does what's unthinkable, a life for life. If you've read the book or seen the film, you probably can picture the scene. Aslan meets the witch and her horde of ogres and wolves and bullheaded men, evil trees and poisonous plants, hags and wraiths and whores at the stone table. Lewis writes, all those on the witch's side assemble. Aslan comes in willingly, not out of weakness but power, and he lays himself down. They bound him, they muzzled him, they shaved his mane. Lewis describes the scene. They shouted and cheered as if they had done something brave. though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. They go on to mock him, not as a great lion, but only a cat. They taunt him with offers of milk. They laugh and they jeer until the final blow is dealt. And the white witch exclaimed, the great fool, the great cat lies dead. They're overjoyed because they think that his death guarantees their victory in the war. Now Susan and Lucy at a distance, these are Edmund's sisters, they weep because they're confused about what Aslan has done. They're filled with sorrow at the loss of their friend and good king. They are worried about what will become of them in the war. One event, two responses. The death of the lion brought tears to those who loved him, to those who relied on him for safety, And it brought laughter and a false sense of security to those who opposed him. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ divides all of human history between those who cheer because they think they finally have rid themselves of God's rule and his presence. And those who weep, at least initially, because they understand that apart from God's rule and presence, there is no life. The cross divides human history. In our suffering and sorrow, the world offers no comfort to those who are suffering in the cross of Jesus Christ. They will only add to our affliction and alienation. Perhaps on this side of resurrection, they taunt us that he's not coming back. You see, the news that the world shares cuts against the news of the gospel. The feelings that the world feels cuts against the feelings of the church. We grieve, they inflict. We mourn, they laugh. But the suffering that the disciples feel is temporary. It comes with a promise. In a little while, you will see me again. The resurrection changes everything. Brothers and sisters, our suffering at the hands of the world is temporary and comes with a promise. We will see him again. Jesus goes on, verse 20, you will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Our sorrow is not only temporary, it's transformative. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Notice a Christian doesn't just move from a state of sorrow to joy, but their sorrow actually is what's turned into joy. Because the same event that brought them pain on the other side of of resurrection and revelation brings them joy. The cross at first looks like all loss. On the other side of resurrection, it's all victory. The cross at first looks like all shame. On the other side of resurrection, it is all glory. The cross at first looks like Satan's victory. On the other side of resurrection, it's his destruction. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection is the vindication of the son and it changes everything, including our suffering. It means that the son was not just put to death by lawless men, but was crushed by a just God to forgive our sins. It means that the son's heel was not just bruised, but that he crushed the head of the snake. It means not just that we lost our king for a few days, but that we have gained God forever. Sorrow is transformed into joy through the prism of resurrection. Same event, but resurrection and revelation change the way we understand it. Jesus, in fact, gives us an illustration to grasp this in verse 21. He says, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. When she is given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. Facts. Now, I'm no woman. I've never been pregnant. I've not been in labor. But four kids later, I can attest to this truth. In fact, I vividly remember when Jess was in labor with our firstborn Haddon, I had the clearest thought in my mind. It was crystal clear. We will never do this again. <laughs> I thought, this is it, people. We are one and done. I wasn't even the one suffering in pain. Yes, labor is beautiful. Truly, it's where you see the gift of life. It's also terrifying and vulnerable. It, without exception, brings you close to death's door. It puts you in the house of suffering as you wait in fear. The mother pushes through pain, but why? The prospect of life the baby is born in what happens verse 21 she no longer remembers the suffering it was temporary not just that it's transformative because of the joy that a person has been born into the world I'll never forget Jess's face the exhaustion and pain were gone at least for a moment as she held the life she brought into the world Whatever thought I initially had about this one being the last immediately dissipated as I saw and then held my son. Fear gave way to favor, pain to pleasure. But notice again, it's not just that the mother goes from suffering to joy. It's at the same event, considered from a different perspective. Before the child comes, labor means nothing but pain and suffering. On the other side, it means joy. Because she sees the one she loves. Suffering was temporary and it gave way to joy that so eclipsed it that you forgot about it. It was so worth it you do it again and again and again. And I think that's it for us. But, Christian, don't miss this no suffering, no joy. No pain, no promise. The normal rhythm of the Christian life is suffering and then joy. It's humility and then exaltation, it's death and then life, it's labor and then love, it's faith and then sight. Brothers and sisters, there are no shortcuts to deep abiding joy in the Christian life. There are no life hacks to joy. No five minute abs for your spiritual life. The pattern for the good life that Jesus promised us in John chapter 10 is suffering first and then joy. It's faith and then sight. It's faith fueled effort that leads to fruit. Christian, if we never suffered, if we only ever experienced extreme joy we would have little reason to trust Jesus. If all of God's promises were fully realized in this life, it would make faith almost irrelevant. God calls us to and leads us through suffering, often in the midst of a dense fog, so that we might learn to actually walk by faith and not by feelings. That we would trust his word and not the world. Jesus aims to ground us in the truth that we need to believe because the news that the world reports and the feelings that we often feel cut against God's reality, which is the only reality. The Christian life is often marked by periods of suffering, of deep suffering that later yields, that is actually the opportunity for greater joy. This is why James can tell us in James chapter 1, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. This is why Paul can tell us in Romans chapter 8, that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. This is why Peter can tell us, rejoice, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when His glory is revealed. It's through the sorrow in faith where we tend to experience the promises of God, the provision of God, the faithfulness of God that then yields greater joy. If not in this life, then in the life to come. Sorrows in this life abound because virtually everything that we hold dear can be stripped away from us, our health, our reputation, our loved ones, our careers, our homes. But in ways we can't fully grasp now, God uses that loss, that suffering, to lead us to greater joy, to a weight of glory that's not even worth comparing. It leads to greater joy. Look what Jesus says in verse 22. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one, and no one, and no one will take away your joy from you. Here's what's different. Here's what sets Jesus' joy apart from any joy that the world can offer. It cannot be taken away from you. Why? Because Jesus cannot be taken away from you. The cross was the devil's best effort and the empty tomb says not good enough. His effort at crushing our joy and stealing our Jesus is what secured his defeat. Jesus' joy can't be taken away because his cross work can't be undone. The grave can't claim him again. His spirit will not leave you. His kingdom will not expel you. His Father's table is reserved for you. The joy that Jesus offered is guaranteed because it's not grounded in you. Not in your works, not in your feelings, not in your circumstances, not even in the strength of your faith. It's grounded in Jesus Christ The son of life who overcame death through death so that you could live in his life. Christian, rejoice. Even in sorrow, you can rejoice because Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and he is coming again. Your suffering is temporary and it's transformed. Rejoice. To this, Jesus adds a second reason that we can rejoice and it's because our supplications are heard by God and they're answered. In the midst of our suffering, as we cry out to God, he hears us and he answers us and it yields joy. We can rejoice because our supplications are heard and answered. It's not just how, it's the why that brings joy truly. Truly. Jesus Christ has so united us to himself, he's taken us with him to the Father and given us the Father's ear that belongs to him. So now as you suffer, the Father is concerned with how you fare through the world and has made all of heaven's resources available to you through prayer. Christian, as you suffer, God sees you. He hears you. He cares about you. He aims to meet your needs in prayer, and it produces joy. And Jesus goes on in in verse 23. He says something interesting. He says, in that day you will not ask me anything. Okay, in that day, meaning after his death, resurrection, and ascension. In that day you will not ask me anything. He says something very similar in verse 26. He states it negatively there. On that day you will ask in my name, and I am not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Okay, verse 23, we're not asking Jesus. He says, in fact, we're asking the Father in his name. And in verse 26, it's worded kind of strangely, but he's saying that he's not going to ask the Father for things on our behalf. Okay, this is not because Jesus doesn't mediate for us. This is not because Jesus doesn't intercede for us. Those are both true. This is because what Jesus has accomplished by becoming man by reconciling God and man, and then by ascending to heaven as man and sitting on the throne as man, is that he has brought mankind, his people in particular, directly into the Father's home. Verse 28 gives us a kind of summary of his mission. He's come from the Father into the world so that he could take us in him to the Father. He hides us in himself who is himself hidden in the bosom of the Father. Jesus what he does for us is he takes us to the source as it were. Now what that means is that we don't have to ask Jesus to ask the Father on our behalf. What Jesus has done is he's taken us to the Father, but not as strangers who have come to the house looking for food. Jesus takes us directly to the Father as his own children. This is the kind of access that he gives. This is why we ordinarily pray to the Father in the name of the Son and by the Spirit. Think about it. It it tends to be the case that the more important someone is, the less access you have to them, the more assistance and kind of hoops you have to get through to get to them. Like, imagine how many positions and assistance you would have to get through to simply get an email in front of the president. Most of us in this room would not be able to do that. We don't have that kind of relationships that kind of access, that kind of import. Think about how difficult it would be to get audience to the president. It would be incredibly difficult, for most of us impossible, unless you were his son or his daughter. You would have immediate access. This is what Jesus has done. What is his by nature, he gives us as a gift by grace. The same access to the Father. And you see that we pray in the name of Jesus... This is because what makes our prayers effective, what makes our prayers possible, is not us but Christ. Christian, you don't have to clean yourself up before you go to God in prayer. You're already clean in Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, in the adoption of Jesus, in the access of Jesus, in the righteousness of Jesus. It takes us past every other so-called mediator and thrusts us right in the throne room of grace where God, our Father, loves to hear our cries. Why? Because he loves us. God loves it when we pray to him because he loves us. We see this in verse 27. Jesus is telling us why he won't be asking on our behalf, but instead we'll be asking the Father. He says, for the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. This is the fruit of Jesus' mission, being sent by God in love. In an act of love, he saves us. The Spirit is poured in our hearts in love. Romans 5, we respond in faith and love. We then put ourselves in a position to experience God's love all the more in prayer. It's so important, I think, for us to grasp, because if you're inclined to think that God the Father is only ever angry with you you will be disinclined to pray if you think that Jesus is the loving and the merciful one and the father is the distant one you will be disinclined to pray it's like if you think that you're the least left sibling but your older sibling always gets what they want you have them relay your requests you know like hey uh, ask dad if we can have dessert tonight tell him it's your idea Right, The text completely cuts against any notion that Jesus is the one who wants to help us and the Father only does so begrudgingly. He only loves us because Jesus has forced his hand by means of the cross. No, God the Father in love sent his Son into the world to save sinners like us because he loves us. Verse 28 is a summary of the son's mission. I came from the father, which is to say he was sent by the father. John 3.16, in love, the father gives the son up for the world. He's come into the world, and again, I'm leaving the world and going to the father. We know why, John 14.6, to make a way for us to the father. Brothers and sisters, God the father loves you. He crushed his son in love for you. He raised him in love for you. He has seated him on high as king in love for you. He has united you to him in love for you. All of Jesus' work is not for him or even the Father as though they had some kind of lack. It was done for you in love. The Father loves you. And what do fathers want from their children? What do fathers love to do with their children? To spend time with them, to care for them, to meet their needs so that their joy might be complete. This is what is offered to us on the other side of prayer. Look at verse 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. How often do you think of joy as a gift from God so that your joy may be complete? If we were honest, most of us, when we think of joy, we think of something that's used to shame us or guilt us. And yet God is, sorry, when we think of prayer, we think of something that brings shame. And yet God has designed it to bring us joy. Prayer is intended to lead to joy. Think about it on the flip side. Where the Christian lacks joy, they almost always lack in prayer. Yes, sometimes prayerful Christians will have dry seasons that God gives them as they learn to trust the Father all the more, but more often we lack in joy because we lack in communion with God. We lack joy because we've come to believe that the Father doesn't love us. We lack joy because in our minds he's only frowning down upon us. We lack joy because we think he's so little concerned with our needs and desires. We lack joy often because we lack in prayer. And yet as we often sing, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I'm not intending to suggest it that simple, but brothers and sisters, if you lack joy, could it be because you lack in prayer? Because you commune with God infrequently. If you lack joy because you lack in prayer, it's not because God is punishing you. It's, it's more like suffering from malnourishment, from not even eating, even though the fridge is full. God has given you access to him. He's given you access to joy. Think about it. When we have needs that we can't meet, we usually go to someone who we think could help. If you need a loan for a house, you go to the bank. If you need treatment for severe illness, you go to the doctor. Now the more pressing the need, the more able someone is to meet that need, and especially the more that they love you, the more inclined, the easier it is, the more quickly you go to them. They have the resources, they love you. Perhaps you've seen them care for you in the past. Imagine you knew someone who was wealthy, they loved you as much as they love themselves, and you got in a financial bind, you would probably go to them for help. Pressing need, the power to meet, the compassion to do so. I think we often don't pray because we either assume that God doesn't care for us, or he can't help us. We have disconnected our needs and our wants and our desires from God, and therefore our joy. We think that he has nothing to do or cares little about our career, our health our family our loneliness our depression our anxiety our future we have disconnected our need from god brothers and sisters god loves you he loves to spend time with you he longs to hear your requests that he might answer them in prayer he wants you to pray to him We've seen it now twice in chapter 14, twice in chapter 15, now again in 16. Jesus is reminding us to ask God whatever, anything, to take it to him in prayer. And look at what happens again to those who regularly go to God in prayer, in faith. Ask and you will receive, this is verse 24, so that your joy may be complete. Brothers and sisters, God longs to answer your prayers in such a way that will yield the most long-term joy. God is not stingy toward his people. I can tell you that as a father, I love, I love giving my kids gifts. It's not like a love language of mine, but with the kids, I love giving them gifts. I love seeing their faces light up. I love seeing them make the connection between me, the kind of giver of good gifts and their needs or wants or desires as they express themselves in joy, okay? There's no Santa Claus in our house. We, it's us. We want all the credit, but we don't give our kids everything they ask for. I don't even give the kids everything I would want to give them. I would be broke. They would be entitled We give what we think is best for their long-term joy. What we do in prayer is we not only acknowledge that God has the ability to give us what we're asking for, but that he knows what's best. We submit ourselves humbly in prayer. Brothers and sisters, God longs for you to humble yourself in prayer, to bring your requests to him so that he could answer them in a way that yields the most long-term joy. Sometimes, I think, in fact, usually God answers yes. This is my experience. We pray for so many things, many of them being so little, and God answers them yes, and then we forget about it. And then when something big comes that God doesn't answer, we are inclined to think that he's stingy. And yet God, day after day after day after day, is answering yes to preserve the joy of his people and their good. And yet sometimes God in his wisdom and kindness says no. He lets us sit in loneliness, in sorrow, in sickness for a period that we might come out on the other side experiencing greater joy in the fellowship of our Father and in his provision. The point of prayer is communing with God and then receiving from God what we need that we might experience both his provision and his friendship. Brothers and sisters, as we suffer in the world, we have great need. And God has given us the gift to be able to go to him with our need. He loves to answer our prayers in such a way that leads to joy. But notice, joy in the Christian life, it it doesn't come automatically. This kind of joy comes as we sit in persevering prayer with God through suffering. But we can rejoice. We rejoice that our suffering is temporary. We rejoice that God hears us as we cry and we mourn. We rejoice that he provides. And we rejoice, lastly, that our success in and over the world is guaranteed. Our success over the world is guaranteed. Now Jesus acknowledges some of their confusion again in verse 25. He says that he's spoken in something of parables. We see this even uh, with the metaphor he uses, the woman in labor. But he says "A time is coming when they will understand. Again, this is post-death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. They need the Spirit, verse 13. Jesus summarizes his mission in verse 28. It's about God the Son coming in the world in a new way as man and then ascending to the Father that he might take us with him. Verse 28, it's kind of summary of his mission. The disciples respond, look, now you're speaking plainly. And not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. Uh, By this we believe that you came from God. Now notice the disciples are saying they get it now. They only confess half of what Jesus has said. They don't get all the future stuff that's coming. Death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. Again, how could they? Then the Spirit's not descended on them. And so Jesus gives them a mild rebuke, verse 31, and a little bit of proof that they don't get it, verse 32. Verse 31, Jesus responded to them, do you now believe? It's like your friend tells you they get something. Really? Explain it to me. And then Jesus goes on, indeed an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Again, they are saying they understand, but when it comes, they will feel as though they've lost, and they will abandon Christ. When the world looks like it's won, they will go into hiding. When the world is rejoicing, they will weep. Uh, They will desert Christ for a season. Okay, for all of Christ's teaching and warning, they will be shaken by the events. Jesus knows all of this. We saw this in John chapter 16. He knew of all of his disciples who would fall away. Uh, Jesus knows of Peter's coming failure. Hear what he told him in John chapter 13. Jesus now knows about their coming failure and is warning them. But get this. He still chose them. Jesus knows about all of your failures. Past, present, and future. And get this. He still chose you. And not only did he choose you, he wants you to know that he knows that you'll continue to fail him, and that he chose you nonetheless, that he promises you good nonetheless. Look at verse 33, Jesus, after telling them about their desertion, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Jesus not only wants them to know that he will die and rise, that he will depart and return, that the world will laugh as they cry, but that he knows how they will respond, and that he still gives them peace. He wants them to experience the gospel even as they're seeing it play out in real time. He will bear their sins and their failings, and in return, he offers them peace. This is the nature of the gospel That Jesus offers righteousness to the wicked, adoption to the rebel, joy to the sorrowful, peace to those who think that Christ is not in control. He tells them on the front end so that they would know that he is the king and that he rules in grace. Brothers and sisters, rejoice that Jesus sees how you have and continue to respond to troubles in the world. And he offers you peace. He knows that you are quick to doubt him. He knows about the sins that you run to when you're anxious. He knows that you're little in prayer when you're stressed. He sees it all and he wants you to know that he still offers you peace. How is this possible? On the cross, which is coming for them, which has happened for us, Jesus has dealt with the root of our sin with the cause of the curse and with the ruler of this world. On the cross, Jesus Christ has won and it gives us peace. Amen. Jesus goes on 33 You will. Brothers and sisters, you will. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. How? I have conquered the world. Jesus' goal for us is not to sneakily make our way through the world as we journey to heaven, hiding in fear. He commands us to be people of courage because he has won the war. Because Jesus rose from the grave, the cross is not just where the world tried to conquer God, it's where God conquered the world. It's where our sins are forgiven. It's where the curse is rolled back. It's where the king is enthroned. It's where Satan is dealt a mortal blow. The cross and the resurrection show the world that they can't beat us even by killing us. And Jesus told us, John 16, 2, they'll even try. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus has conquered the world, we are in a war that has already been won. In a sports game, it could happen in the Super Bowl today, let's say one team blows the other team out. Let's say the other team is blowing the other team out, and there's a huge gap. There's like a massive gap in the score. It's so large that the other team can't come back. Okay? We call this garbage minutes. That's where you put your bad players in because you don't have to rely on them. (laughs) Okay? There's no concern about the other team coming back. It's like we are playing in the garbage minutes of the game. It does not depend on us. The score is 100,000 to zero. We are waiting out the clock. And Jesus calls us to do it not in fear, but with courage. Why? Because we're winning and we've won. And yet our disposition is often like the disciples. We assume that because we're suffering, it must mean that we're losing. We continue to battle the same old sins. We're sharing the gospel with the same people. We're seeing a culture and country embrace moral decay. You see, our inclination in the valley of darkness is to lose perspective on how far God has brought us as people, is to lose sight of where we're going, and most importantly, to lose sight of him who's guiding us. The temptation in our suffering is to fix our eyes on ourselves and our circumstances. And yet Jesus calls us to look to him who has conquered the world. He calls us to fix our eyes on the one who walked out of the grave, who beat the devil with his own stick, the one who will one day cause the heavens to crack. Look to Jesus who has conquered the world. Don't look to yourselves and your suffering. Look to him who has conquered it all. He has conquered the world, and the world will not. It cannot overcome us. How could it? As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? He goes on, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Jesus has conquered, we cannot be conquered by the world. Brothers and sisters, you can take courage because the war that we're in has already been won. You can have peace because Christ is in control and is working all things together for the good of those who love him. You can have joy because he has risen from the grave. He has given you access to the Father and he will come again in victory. Brothers and sisters, for a little while we suffer. For a little while we long to see him. But one day our eyes will meet and our suffering will be swallowed up in joy forever. The resurrection guarantees it. All we have to do is to wait. We do so with peace, with courage, and especially with joy. Let's pray.